Uh, the Bible's reading is from Exodus 19, and that's to 10.3. And it's on page 76, if you've got the, the Blue Bibles. And the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And Moses went to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountains and said, This is what you are to say. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answers back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready for, by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountains and tell them, be careful that they do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn is a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourself for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. 
The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and people must not force their way through to come to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bio. Well, do keep that passage open. And let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are an unchanging God. And that as we come to this part of your word, we see a fearsome, dangerous, holy, consuming fire that the people could not approach, that the people feared. And Lord, we thank you that we come to you this morning, the same God, the same holy, pure consuming fire and yet we thank you that we come through your son the Lord Jesus Christ through the shed blood that speaks to us of your acceptance of us in the Lord Jesus our mediator so Lord please would you speak to each and every one of us this morning please speak to our hearts of your holiness and how we can come close to you and we ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, what is going on when we meet with God as a gathered assembly of people like we're doing here this morning? What's going on when we go to any church where the Lord is known, where the lampstand is burning? Three things that we're going to learn from the passage we had read. The first is this, that God's gathered people are carried as a covenant people to be a treasured possession. For Christians here this morning, we have been carried to meet with God as a covenant people to be a treasured possession. Verse 4, the Lord says to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We've heard, haven't we, how God rescued his people from Egypt because he'd promised to do so to Abraham. He'd fulfilled his gracious promise by making them into a, a great people, over two million, and he'd rescued them from Egypt through mighty acts of judgment on the gods of Egypt and on Pharaoh. And he'd rescued them through the Red Sea. Not because they were good, as we'll find out later on in Exodus, where we're to continue, or in Numbers. 
Now, he rescued them out of his faithfulness, out of his grace, his promise for a relationship with him. And the way that God describes how he's done that is beautiful. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Sorry if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan. But in all the films, um, from The Hobbit through to The Return of the King, when it seems like all hope is lost, Gandalf is about to be killed and all the hobbits are about to be eaten by orcs, or there's Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, I almost forgot, about to be incinerated by a volcano and the eagles show up and they're carried on eagles' wings. I don't think that's quite the imagery that uh, is being meant here, but it conveys something of that rescue. The imagery is more to do with a, a, a mother eagle caring for her chicks, carrying them on her wings. Commentators are not quite sure how the imagery works. But you get the idea. It's a beautiful, gentle carrying of the vulnerable and young for personal relationship. Carried on eagle's wings to myself. And do you remember when we were looking at Revelation, how John describes Christians to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests, same language, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing we learn from this passage is that if we're Christians here this morning, we have been freed from our sins by his blood to be a kingdom of priests, to be made holy, to be consecrated to God as we'll see. We have been carried here by the gentle and rescuing hands of God. Just as the Israelites were saved, they were saved by the Passover lamb who, whose blood was shed to avert God's wrath over their lives. Just like the Israelites, we have been baptized through the Red Sea, saved from the power of death. He has carried us on eagle's wings here this morning. Now, it may not feel like that. For some of us, the experience of getting to church on a Sunday morning does not feel like we are being carried. We are having to do the carrying. But particularly the, the mothers amongst us. Remember that experience of carrying children to church, carrying them, getting their nappies. I'm not suggesting that the husbands aren't doing this, by the way. Providing their food, defending them from dangers on the way, literally carrying them to church. Well, the image is not that far distant from what God does for each and every one of us spiritually as we gather as his people. He 
carries us by his grace. We have each and every one of us been carried by God this morning to gather with his people. He has rescued us from beginning to end. We're his covenant people not because we have obeyed the Ten Commandments. We are his covenant people to obey the Ten Commandments, to please him, to serve him, to enjoy communion with him. He has brought us to himself. And if we're not feeling that this morning, and it's quite likely that we're not, well, then we can say, Lord, carry me. Carry me back to church. Carry me with God's people. I need you to carry me. I cannot carry myself or my family. Or Would you carry me? You remember that um, illustration of footsteps? I think it was called footsteps. Two sets of footsteps walking along the beach as a metaphor of life. And the question is, Lord, when, when I was going through the darkest times, wh why was it that I only saw one set of footprints? And we know what the answer was. Well, that is when I carried you. In fact, the Christian life only has one set of footprints. From beginning to end, God carries us to himself. Jesus carries us to meet with God. And it's very easy to reverse that, particularly if we're serving hard in church life or like me, you stand up in front of people and preach or musicians, because we think we're carrying it. But do you know what that is? That's paganism. The other gods were carried to the temple on processions or statues or if you were a pagan you would carry your idols in your hand to set them up to pray to them like you see in Gladiator. Great film but the religion is not very good. It is pagan to say God depends on us for what goes on here this morning. No, we depend on him. We are a carried covenant people. God has brought us together this morning to meet with him. And if we're struggling in that, let's just refresh ourselves by saying to him, Lord, carry me, carry me to meet with you. I remember when I just become a Christian, I experienced this. It was the difference between... Before I was a Christian, it was, oh, I've got to go to church. I really don't want to go to church. How can I get out of this? To, oh, I want to be with God's people. I just carried. Secondly, a consecrated covenant people meet God by trusting his mediator. And this is the rest of chapter 19. It's perhaps the main point of chapter 19, which gives rise to the Ten Commandments. So it's... It's important that we get this, isn't it? We're about to look at the Ten Commandments. We're looking at commandment number one today. But what is going on? Verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. They're going to meet. 
so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. God appears to all the people by drawing close to Moses in thick darkness and talking with him. They have a conversation with words. God is not some force that is encountered or some feeling. He's a person who speaks words and they hear the words even though Moses is 2,000 feet away up a mountain. The the people are on a plane about 5,000 feet and and Moses goes to the top of the mountain. It's about 2,000 feet away up. I don't know how far away, but everybody hears the conversation. It must have been quite loud. But then, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In order to hear what God is going to say, they need to be consecrated, made holy, by Moses. They need to wash their clothes. They need to abstain from sexual relations. Not at all because there is anything dirty about sex or God thinks sex is dirty. No, he invented it. No, this is because of paganism, which taught that the way that you meet with God is by having sex. That's what all the pagan religions of the ancient world amplified, whether it's the Romans or the Greeks or the Hittites, the Canaanites, you name it. And so God is just saying here, no, 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 that's not the way. You meet with me by being made holy, by listening to me. But why the consecration? Why do the people need to meet holy? Well, God is like a consuming fire. A furnace, a a nuclear fire. If you or I or the Israelites were to get close to God without a mediator, without a boundary, we'll be incinerated. And so there was a boundary and the people were not to cross it and animals were not to cross it. And if they did, they had to be exterminated, killed, shot with arrows, stoned, you name it. Just don't touch If people wanted to get close to a raging fire, especially a nuclear fire, if you just wander in without any protection, it's not going to go well for you. It may not be immediate, but if we want to get close to God, we can't just wander into his presence. We need a mediator. And God is organizing his mediator. He's saying, look, Moses, I'll speak to you and there'll be lots of sound and fury and fire and that will mean that the people trust in you because they won't want to come close. We won't want to come close to God. We want to meet with him this morning as we gather Do we do it without God's mediator? Do we think that's safe? Because the Bible tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and people. The man Christ Jesus. How did he make it safe? 
he gave himself as a ransom for all people. To get us into God's presence, he had to pay a price, a price of his life in place of ours. So when we come to church, God carries us and he consecrates us by laying down his life for us. What a privilege to be here. Is it not a privilege to be here? That we're gathering and meeting with the almighty creator of the universe, the holy one, the consuming fire, and yet we can do it in a pub. Why? Because of Jesus dying on a cross. Because he is the mediator who gave his life. So we can meet. Not just with each other. I mean, that's lovely, isn't it? I mean, it is nice to meet with you. But we meet with Almighty Yahweh, the I am that I am, the one who is before all things and after all things and in all things and above all things and outside all things. What a privilege. But if you're anything like me, sometimes you think, oh, I'm not sure I want to go to church this morning. And I'm the preacher. Let's just uh, go into uh, one of the passages in the New Testament that picks this up so helpfully. Because the temptation for us might be, mightn't it, that because we are emphasizing um, the informality of gathering, and I think that's a, a right thing because we want to welcome everybody, and because we're meeting in a pub, the danger is that we forget to fear the one with whom we are meeting. So Hebrews chapter 12, page 1211 in, in these Bibles. Now the reason why we don't meet in a temple or a tabernacle or a church building that tries to be a temple or a tabernacle is because we can meet God anywhere throughout the whole earth. And that includes this pub. But we have come to something holy this morning. And whenever we meet as God's people, not just here, but in our homes or on Zoom, we meet at this place as well. You have not come, sorry, chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus. Yes, we meet with Jesus this morning, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, in other words, forgiveness rather than murder. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, in other words, an eternal one beyond this creation, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is still a consuming fire. So as we gather, that's what's happening. We are consecrated by our mediator, the Lord Jesus, so that we can enter not just the pub, but heaven itself and meet with God. We can be carried into God's presence. And so we are to worship him with reverence and awe. How? We listen to his words. There's nothing about music here. I'm not decrying music. There's nothing in that passage, was there, about worship in any particular cultural format. No, the worship is to not refuse him who speaks. If we refuse him who speaks from heaven, it will be worse for us than it was for them who refused him who spoke on earth. That, that's what it said, wasn't it? So we come to the serious business of being a commanded people. Verse 1 of chapter 20, or whatever verse it is, because it kind of got lost. Chapter 20, back to Exodus. We're consecrated. We trust in Jesus. He's our mediator. He shed blood so that we can come and meet with God. But let's not think it's a less serious thing than it would have been to spend a year at the foot of the mountain, which is how long it took for the Israelites to listen to God. We must listen. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God rescued them. God carried them. He's rescued us. He's carried us here. He's carried us into his presence through Jesus. What does he say to us? You shall have no other gods before me. Before me. It means in the presence of literally before my face, the God who fills heaven and earth, who sees all things, no other priorities, nothing above him in the affections of our hearts. God says to each and every one of us, I'm to be first. He's not saying, oh, uh, as long as I'm first, you can have as many other things that you live for and as many other gods as you like, as long as I'm before all the others. No. No other gods in my presence. No other affections in my presence. It certainly refers to the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple. It, 
certainly refers to the leaders and the, the whole nation, as was made clear in Exodus 18. It certainly refers to home and family, as it was made clear in Deuteronomy 6. It certainly refers to the heart, as Ezekiel expounds. But when Jesus came, he reiterated this commandment in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, if that's what that commandment means, do we keep it? Can anybody say, yeah, I, I, I keep that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loving God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. Ah, that's, that's quite easy. <laughs> exactly. But we meet people, don't we? They say, oh, yeah, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments. It's just so, you know, of course I keep the Ten Commandments. I'm a good, nice, moral person. Nobody keeps the Ten Commandments. Apart from Jesus. Now, just as we uh, apply this first commandment to ourselves, uh, there's three aspects um, of the way in which we can apply all ten commandments to our lives. Three ways. The first, this is sort of Reformed theology for those who like that, um, which I do. Um, but just Bible-believing Christians have traditionally held, held that there's three uses of the law. The first is to lead us to Christ the pedagogical use, the, if we're children, being led like a school teacher to the mature place of trusting Jesus rather than thinking that we keep the law. So the use of the law is to help us see that we can't keep the law. We need somebody to keep the law for us. Pedagogical, it comes from Galatians chapter 4. The law teaches us that we need Jesus Christ not only as our substitute to take the punishment for our sins, but as the one who gives us his law-keeping, his righteousness. And we need to seek to obey the law, not in the old way of the flesh, but in the new way of the spirit, with the law being written on our hearts. Not just trying very, very hard. Although it does involve that. So, pedagogical. The second to conform us to Christ, or normative. What does the Lord do? It shows us what Jesus is like internally, because he fully obeyed the law, not just externally, but from his heart. He always loved God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind perfectly from beginning to end. And so it shows us more of what Jesus is like and, and shows us more of what we need to be like in union with Christ because God has promised to conform us to the image of his son. That, that's what, if you're praying to be conformed to the image of God's son, that prayer will be answered because God's promised to answer it. But on that journey, we see Jesus in the Gospels, fully obeying the law as a human being so we can see what that looks like. It means we love the Good Samaritan. We love people who are not like us, who don't believe what we believe. 
It means those caught in sin, like the adulterous woman, are treated gently. It means Jesus is angry with religious hypocrisy wherever he sees it, and he condemns it out of love, because he knows how toxic it is, how poisonous it is, how blind it is. You probably need to be careful with that. So, secondly, conformance to Christ. And then finally, preserve freedom to live for Christ. There's a civil use, there's a public use of God's law, which obviously was one of the most uh, dominant aspects of it being uh, applied in the life of the theocracy that was Israel. But whatever culture we live in is a mix, isn't it, of opposing the law of God or commending the law of God. No culture perfectly applies the law of God. And so we need to be thinking through how God's law is promoted by the culture we live in and in what ways the law of God is being undermined by the culture we live in and how we need to be distinctive. So three applications as we close. First, pedagogical. Do you, do I, keep this law to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength? Do we keep that? If the answer is no, God doesn't just let us off. He is a consuming fire. He is holy. There is only one way that we can keep that law, and that's by putting our trust in Jesus Christ, who has taken the punishment that we deserve and given us his perfect righteousness, his imputed righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, so when we come into God's presence, God sees us as his beloved sons and daughters. We are his treasured possession because the law has been kept for us. We needn't worry as much as maybe some of us do that we've broken God's law. I'm not suggesting we chuck it out, but we are trusting in another to keep God's law for us and to sustain the status that we have with God, which is treasured, treasured. It's wonderful, isn't it? What Jesus has done for us. And therefore, the way in which we become more and more like Jesus is by looking at Jesus more and more and loving him more and more and on that road to being conformed to his image, trusting that he will work in our hearts, writing the law of God on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If I'm honest, my... my spiritual sort of response to hearing God's word is something like this. Do that. Yeah, I can do it. I try and do it. I fail. I say sorry. I come back and I just repeat. There's a step that's missing from that, isn't it? God's law. I fail. I can't do that. Jesus, you've done it for me. Thank you. I'm still a son and a daughter. I, my status before you has not changed. Thank you. Please help me by your spirit. Write your law on my heart. Transform me, God, by your spirit. I'll try again. Do we see the difference? Pedagogical. The Lord leads us to Christ. Secondly, it's normative. Uh, Jesus Christ fully kept the law. He always loved and obeyed God as a human being and as the Son. He obeyed his heavenly Father in everything he did. And so we trust in him. And we aspire to live like him. It's not beyond us. 
I confess to thinking pretty much most of the time it is for me. But then why does the Apostle John say those who claim to live in him must walk as Jesus did? How can he say that? Wouldn't it be wonderful if as we trust in Jesus and as we trust in his perfect law keeping that it doesn't end there that because Jesus fulfilled the Lord that actually we can grow in the depth of our love for one another in such a way that other people look in and think there's something supernatural about this place I can see in these people's relationships and the way that they relate to other people this comes from God not from John Parker or whoever. It comes from somewhere else. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This is how the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. The normative. And then finally, the civic. You know, tomorrow morning, we're going to be confronted by something very different, aren't we? Whatever our lives... The rejection of Jesus Christ by our nation is increasingly not just a rejection of him being God, but the demand that we embrace all gods, all philosophies, all ways of life. And that is not atheism, although it has its roots in atheism. It's paganism. It's polytheism. I mean, the first step was that there's no creator God, but then the next few steps are, so every belief, every God you worship is valid. Let's collect them all together. But the one thing you can't say is that there's only one God and one mediator, and if you don't trust in his mediator, you'll be incinerated. I mean, that's going to go down well tomorrow morning at work, isn't it? So in our schools... God's mediator being Jesus Christ as the only way up the mountain, the only way to be his treasured possession, the only way to be loved by God, is rejected. In our primary schools, in our secondary schools, what is taught is that Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and atheism and being a shaman or into Mother Earth and calling on them is fine. This is really challenging, isn't it? We need to help each other, whether we're parents or teachers or grandparents. How do we relate to our schools to say, no, I'm sorry that my child is not saying an Islamic prayer tomorrow morning. No, I don't want you to practice mindfulness with them calling on Mother Earth because the educational approach is no longer anthropological, is it? It's experiential, because they're all equally nothing. They're not nothing. They're idols. And God commands us to have no other gods in his presence, in our presence, in our families, in our children's lives, in our professional lives. This is deeply challenging.
And we don't live in a theocracy. Ever since the exile of Israel from the land, the prophets have promised that the restoration of Israel is not a return to the land of Israel, but a presencing in the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, the new land that is coming. And historically, some nations have approached the theocratic ideal of Israel, haven't they, when most people have been Christian, which has enabled the state to be a sort of Christian state, which is in our past, even a Christian empire. But are there any lessons to learn from those days? Would we want, if, praise God, the whole nation was one for Christ, would we want to make it illegal to be Jewish or illegal to be a Muslim or illegal to be a witch? I suggest not. Why? Because now God meets with people throughout the whole earth, not just in Israel. The whole world is heading towards a day when the meeting of God will be with the whole earth. And the whole earth will be shaken. The whole earth, like Mount Sinai, when he comes to judge as a consuming fire. And all who do not trust in his mediator But we need to obey his command as his covenant people to love him with everything we are and when we gather to do so with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and praise you that it is only on the backdrop of what you're really like in your holiness and your consuming fire that we see our great need to trust in Jesus, our only mediator, the one who carries us into your presence to be your treasured possessions. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that he's done. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you for his mighty resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the hope he gives us of eternal life, sure and safe, because we're safe in your arms. And we thank you. Amen.